Thanks, Rod and Serena. Yeah, I think Rod, you got the better deal there, didn't you? It's, uh, I always think whenever, yes, say it with confidence, those Old Testament names, that's very important. But if not, all as far as you can always go to the old, and someone might believe you, I don't know. Uh, how about, um, my name's Graham, by the way, if you're with us here for the first time. Welcome, Talita. Talita's my friend from, um, our friend from Dubai, and she involved, she's involved in youth ministry over there, the church that we worked at. So it's lovely to have you here. Here you go. Special mention. That'll be recorded too. Bad luck. Okay. How about we pray and um, we uh, look at God's word here together. Father, thank you that we can be together this morning. Father, thank you that you've drawn us together in the gospel and by the power of your spirit. And it is a special thing for us to be together and to hear, you, hear from you. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would have our hearts opened and our minds uh, ready for action. We pray that, Lord, we'd put your words into practice. Amen. Well, each time, each time we open God's word, our expectation ought to be that God will speak. Each time we do that. That's his promise, isn't it? That God will speak as we open his word in our, in, in our Bibles. And these are God's word. God's word. So when we read them, when we hear them, he speaks to us. And they're relevant to us simply because, well, they're God's words. That's why they're relevant. So our question this morning as we begin is, what's God saying as we open 1 Samuel? What's God saying to us as we open this book of the Bible? Now to understand that, we need to know something of the historical context, that's true. So, let's take a step back in history for a few moments and understand where we're going. Israel's a young nation. The people have now settled in Canaan, uh, the land that God promised to them, but all was not smooth sailing. Uh, prior to where we pick things up today, uh, Israel had been in a time of extraordinary social upheaval. So looking up the top up here, even verging on, on, on anarchy in some ways. So you can see where Samuel fits in, the judges fits, fits in, Abraham, Moses, David. We're looking around 1050 BC, okay, around 1100 BC, that sort of area. So it's been around, when we, when we pick things up today in 1 Samuel chapter 1, it's been around 200 years since the Israelites have crossed the Jordan and, and uh, uh, moved into the promised land that, that um, it's got to promise them. But still, there's, there's no king. There's no real leadership. Now, commentators often refer to this time as judges, the time of the judges. And, of course, there's been a, there's a book in the Bible that, which uh, tells us about and records that time. That's the type of leadership God had, God had been sending, these judges. So we can see a bit of the context there on the screen. Uh, we're a little way before Israel and Judah split and so forth. Now, if you've got a Bible, I really do encourage you to, to bring your Bible along. Uh, flip back to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Now, in my Bible, it's a few pages because we've got to go past Ruth. Now, Ruth is a story that fits in the time of the judges. So that's why they've put it in that part of the Bible. In fact, I flipped in, flipped far too much there. I've gone to Judges chapter 1. It's really, Judges 21, verse 25. And this will give us a bit of an idea of the, the context of the time of, of uh, just before the chapter we read. So Judges 21, verse 25 says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, I must admit, I do like the older translation, which says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I don't know. It's something about that I, I sort of like. But it's the same meaning, isn't it? There, there was, anarchy is not a bad way of describing it. 
So there was no established permanent political authority in the land. Uh, and, and you do get that sense when you read through Judges of that sense of who really... Well, God's in control, yes, but there's, a, there's this sense of... Um, uh, well, there's a sense of crisis, actually, and that crisis is a crisis of leadership. And this is what the crisis uh, looked like in diagrammatic form. This is a summary of Judges. So uh, it's a recurring pattern. Around and around it goes. Israel sins. God's judgment is upon the Israelites because of their sin, often in the form of the Philistines, the, the evil Philistines, those nasty neighbours. Israel repents, and then God sends a saviour, and that saviour is a judge. There's a period of peace and prosperity, and then Israel sins again, and around and around it goes. And you do get the sense as you read that, well, Mac, why, why could they not learn? Around and around it get. Why could they not learn? Well, I guess being maybe honest with ourselves, perhaps we wouldn't be so different. I don't know. Why could we not learn when our sin, with our sin? So, no monarchy, no structure, yet by the grace of God, God was keeping his promises to his people. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel, which is really just one book, by the way, uh, and it Funny enough reason, the reason why it's two books is because it was too big. How's that for a reason? That's pretty much it. It was just a big book and so it split in half, but it's really the one book. So, it's the account of how God answered this leadership crisis. The question of what kind of leadership did this troubled nation lead? What kind of leadership could provide stability and security in Israel? That's the question in the air as we open 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 and 2 Samuel follows the stories of three key leaders. There's the prophet Samuel, who's born in chapter 1. We'll get to that in a moment. And then there's Saul, the first king of Israel. And then we get to David, the great King David. Now our focus in this series is really going to be 1 Samuel chapter 1 to chapter 7. That's what we're going to do. And, God willing, next year we'll continue on that story and look at, look at the chapters that involve Saul. And then we'll get to King David probably in 2020-something. That's okay. Okay, so why should, why should God speak to us about this slice of history? Well, as you might have started to guess already, I think the answer's got to do with leadership and God's purposes. Leadership was an issue then, just as it is today. You see, all of us choose and reject. That's interesting. Look at that. That's meant to be lots of pictures of people. But it's not, is it? No. Isn't that funny, Rod? How about that? Yeah. Okay. So you can imagine, I put about 15 minutes into that little PowerPoint thing there. I'm about 10. Anyway, imagine up there for a minute. Lots of pictures of people and key leaders. You can think of them in your head. Who are the, who are the key leaders that, that, um, uh, that influence us, that we might look up to, that we rely on, that we look up to them, they shape us. So whether we aspire to lead ourselves or and influence others or to be led, well, we know that leadership matters, doesn't it? So we'll ask this important question. What difference does God make to the kind of leader I should be and, more importantly, the kind of leaders I should follow? Well, that question was going to be on the screen. Let's see if it's there, right? Is that going to be there? No. All right. Off, off the... 
the pro presenter has let us down. That's okay, or I have. But it's a key question. I'll read it again. What difference does God make to the kind of leader I should be and, more importantly, the kind of leaders I should follow? That's our question as we open 1 Samuel. So, in 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 7, Israel is looking for a leader. They're looking for a king. But as we open chapter 1, verse 1, in the context of this leadership crisis that we find, Israel finds themselves in, why are we being introduced to this, well, let's be honest, this fairly insignificant family? Shouldn't we focus on some hero, you know, some, some ruler, some people of influence, someone prominent and powerful? Instead, we get Elkanah, this obscure man, um, a certain man from Ramathane, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, the north of Israel. See, perhaps there in verse 1 lies the big clue as to how God will answer this, this leadership question. This book is about God who makes something out of nothing, who makes life out of death, rich out of poor, somebody out of nobody. Perhaps the clue is there. Anyway, let's get into the story. Uh, there's a woman weeping in Shiloh, and we need to find out what that's all about. So, if you've got an outline there, it'd be helpful to have it open. Uh, I, I think this passage can be split into four scenes or four acts, and you can see them on your outline there. Here's the first one, year after year. Elkanah was, this is verses 3 to 7, El Elkanah was a faithful man of God. Year after year, this would be his habit. He would go and make the sacrifices. He would make the journey up to Shiloh, where the temple was located. A fairly significant temple in Israel's history, too, if you want to do some extra study. Uh, about 15 kilometres north of his hometown. So year after year, he would worship the Lord Almighty. Uh, some of the translations have the God of hosts. And give thanks to God, honouring him in the way appropriate to his time. Elkanah had two wives. Now, that was not forbidden in those times, but it sure led to some problems, as, to, as we'll see. But in keeping with his upright conduct, he cared for his wives. He looked after them. He was a good husband. Hannah was most likely Elkanah's first wife, but due to the difficulty and uh, sadness of not being able to have children, Elkanah married a second wife, uh, Peninnah. Let's have a read from verse 3. Year after year, this man went up to his hometown to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, now we later find out that those two were no good at all, they were trouble, uh, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Now notice that Elkanah, in his faithfulness to God, recognised that the gift of children, or not, was God's business. It's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's gift. He's sovereign and he's in control. Notice that. But that wasn't the only common practice in this family. The other common practice, the other routine, the other habit that went on year after year was for Peninnah to hurl insults at Hannah. She is described as Hannah's rival. Look at verse 6. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now you can imagine the barbs thrown at Hannah, can't you? What have you got to thank God for, Hannah? Why are you going up to Shiloh? 
Why are you even coming? What, what, what are you doing here? It's a bit of a joke, isn't it, Hannah? You coming here to give thanks to the Lord year after year? When the one thing you want, God won't give it to you. The Lord has closed your womb, Hannah. Isn't it obvious he doesn't care for you? And this went on, verse 7, year after year after year. Whenever Hannah went to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Friends, on this Mother's Day, this is a, this is a tough and emotional subject for many people, for many Christians. And although we wouldn't dare to speak anything like this woman, uh, Peninnah, sometimes our words to those suffering in this way aren't always helpful. See, God's family has to be a place of love and support and, as best we can, understanding. Well, let's look at this Act 2 and follow this drama through. It's an eventful day in Shiloh. Verses 8 to 18. Look at verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? See, he treated her gently and tenderly as best he could. While he was powerless to change her circumstances, there's no suggestion that his words were anything other than understanding and kind. He really did, as, as we read in verse 5, he really did love her. Well, verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Eli is effectively, I guess at this point, really the, the human leader in the time of Israel. There was no judge right now. Um, there's no judge on duty, so to speak. So in verse 10, in bitterness of soul, she's deeply distressed. Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She was a deeply unhappy woman. But out of her misery and through her tears, Hannah prayed to the Lord. It's clear too that Hannah knew, like her husband and Peninnah, that God had closed her womb. But unlike them, she does something that they do not do, or she prays. Now she could have in such circumstances reacted with fatalism, couldn't she? Uh, if, it's, it, it's, if, if God is sovereign, then who am I to do anything? And then uh, passively accept my lot. But fatalism isn't, isn't the logic of real faith. The other option would be in, in difficult circumstances and a disappointment like this and a hardship like this is a common one. It's, it's resentment. Well, God, if you've done this to me, I don't want anything to do with you. It's a common reaction when we go through very, very difficult times. Again, it's not what faith is. Faith in the Bible means knowing and trusting God's sovereignty and his goodness to us. The logic of faith says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And therefore nothing in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. From Romans 8, 28, 39. That's the logic of faith. So faith in God, therefore, leads us in our troubles to the God who is sovereign over all things. Even when it hurts, and even when we don't know why, that's what Hannah did. 
But where does that faith come from? See, was it just sort of, what's your religion? You are in the faith. You're of the faith, as people might say. Is that, is that what it is? Is it some, some strange religious thing? Or you just believe because that's what, that's what my parents did. I'm of the faith like them, and so I'm faith-filled like them. That's what faith is. Well, no, no, let's look closely at Hannah's prayer. And we have to look closely here. Verse 11. <clears throat> she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery, or we could, we could translate that it, 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 by saying, we could, if you could only look upon the affliction of your servant, that word's important, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give, to him, to the, give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever uh, be used upon his head. I think that's a bit of a, a Samson reference there. He's the hero. We love Samson. He had the long hair, remember? See, Hannah uses the language of the Exodus where God has shown his love in redeeming his people out of Egypt. He remembered, that's a key word, their affliction. He remembered their affliction. He remembered this, that your servant's misery. Hannah uses that language. She's, she's, point, she's remembering that time. She's remembering what God has done. Hannah asked God in faith, and it's faith based on past actions with his people, to do for her what he has done for Israel, in the, what he did for Israel in the days of Moses. This is God's character. This is what God has done. This is what God is like. She knows what God has done. And so she prays in faith. That's what faith is. That's her faith expressed in prayer. We pray because we know what God is like. We pray because we know what God has done. We don't just blindly close our eyes and off goes the prayer. Well, verse 12, uh, she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Now, I guess Eli's understanding might have been based on too many experiences of this type of thing happening up at Shiloh. Uh, people came together for the great meal, bit of wine, bit of sacrifice, food, all got a bit carried away and people got a bit drunk. Uh, a little tipsy at the temple. Although, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't Eli the priest, shouldn't Eli the priest know the difference between getting drunk and God's spirit working in someone's life? I would think so. It doesn't, it doesn't really speak highly of Eli. Well, Hannah replies in verse 15, with a very polite in our NIVs, not so, my Lord. I don't think it was as polite in the Hebrew. Um, I think it would have been, I'm not going to say it here, and I don't think Hannah would have sworn back, but Hannah was cranky. You're, no, I won't say it anymore. No. <laughs> but you can imagine the response. She was cranky. You've accused me of that, and there's far from it. You're kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled, and you think I'm drunk? <sighs> she was cranky. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I almost feel like she's going to say, you silly priest. Don't you know the difference? Anyway, take your, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. Verse 16, I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli, probably a little bit sheepish at this point. Oops, okay. Uh, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she politely responded, may your servant find favour in your eyes. And then she went away 
and she ate something. She hadn't eaten much before and her face was no longer downcast. We may well say she cast all her anxiety on the Lord, knowing that he cared for her. And she certainly, following 1 Peter 5, humbled herself before God's mighty hand and the Lord lifted her up. Okay, let's get to Act 3. They go back home again to Ramah. Uh, same place as what's mentioned in verse 1, but thankfully the writers of 1 Samuel give, what is it, Ramathane a nickname. Ramah. Ramah's much easier. Well, Elkanah split, sleeps with Hannah and she becomes pregnant. The Lord remembered her, note that key word there, uh, just as she asks back in verse 11. And she gives birth to Samuel. Very quick scene, this one. And then in the final scene, Elkanah heads back up to Shiloh, but this time he's on his own. Hannah, there we go, there's our final scene. Uh, Hannah stays back and waits for Samuel to be weaned, uh, possibly three years later. Hannah does head up to Shiloh. She had not forgotten her vow. She would give birth to Samuel. Uh, she's given birth to Samuel and she would give Samuel over to the Lord's service. She would dedicate him for that. So, friends, what's God saying to us today? What's God saying to us today? If this ancient story is the word of God, which we believe, uh, what should we learn from God here? Well, first there's the example of Elkanah. He's a faithful, godly man who honours God and lo loves his wife. We could do worse than reflect on his example. But much more is actually said of Hannah. Isn't that true? Especially considering how Hannah uh, has dealt with her distress. Prayer was not a formal religious experience for Hannah. Don't ever think that about the Old Testament people, we. Uh, prayer was, was real for her. It's from her heart. She cast her cares on the Lord, knowing that he cared for her. Hannah is a, clearly a very good example. But as good as those examples are, and they are worthy of our imitation, don't get me wrong, I don't think that's the central message of the chapter. I don't think that's the heart of it. We need to dig a little deeper. This chapter is not so much about this family. This chapter really is about God and his purposes for his people. So then, what then are we learning about God here? Perhaps this chapter is about prayer and our relationship with God, praying like Hannah, earnestly with all our hearts so that when we are sad, whether it's because we desire children and God has not given them to us or any other disappointment in life, then if we pray earnestly, God will turn the disappointment into joy because that's what God does and you'll get what you've longed for. Is that what this chapter is all about? I don't think so. My guess is that there would have been many childless women in Israel. And I reckon they prayed earnestly as well. And equally reasonable for us to assume that many of them remain childless. In other words, we're told this story not as an example or because we ought to think of it as typical of how God answers such prayers. No, we're told Hannah's story because it's unusual. Of all the troubled women in Israel, it is this woman's prayer that God chose to answer. Why? Why did God chose to answer this woman's prayer? Or was it because she was more earnest in her prayers? The tears, 
Was it because she was more miserable than all the others? Was it because she cut a deal with God, with her son Samuel, in her vow in verse 11? No, I don't think so. Now, this chapter is not really about Hannah or Elkanah. It's about God and his purposes. And Samuel, the baby born, is a big part of them. Not only does God care about Hannah in answering her prayer and giving a son, he cares about his people and he cares about this leadership crisis that's in Israel. It's entirely unexpected, isn't it? Who would have looked twice at miserable, sobbing Hannah for the answer to Israel's leadership crisis? She was just a nobody. But remember, God turns nobodies into somebodies. The point is that God does care. He cared about the relationship of his people Israel, sorry, the leadership of his people Israel, and gave Hannah a son. And he cares about the leadership of the world and of us. So much so that he gave a young Israelite woman, around a thousand years later, a son. A son who will surpass Hannah's son. A son who will ultimately address the leadership question. God's son, Jesus Christ. See, like Israel in the days of Samuel, it would be foolish to not rely on the leadership that God has provided. There's much more to this story, isn't there? We'll find out more next week. Let's pray. Father, we, we are a, a society today where we do have many leaders, people we look up to, people who influence us. And some of us, of course, are leaders not only here in church, but also, Lord, in our workplaces and in our social scenes. Lord, we pray that, that we would not be foolish like Israel had been, but instead that we would rely on the leadership that you have provided, and that is through your son, Jesus. Lord, we look forward to seeing what happens in the next few chapters with Samuel as they indeed look for a king, they look for a leader. Lord, we pray that we would um, you'd challenge us. We'd learn lots about what it means to follow you, Lord Jesus, our great king. Amen.